The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Over the course of these three years, we've been discussing a broad range of topics in archaeology that are of relevance both to the professional community and to the greater public. And one of the topics that we have been exploring in some detail is the question of training of future archaeologists, because like most fields, and possibly even more than many, this field is changing all the time, and it is increasingly being tuned into the relevance of what archaeologists do, and the meaning that they may have in a very empirical and practical sense. And one of the issues that has been a long-standing problem is a sort of a uh, distinction and a changing emphasis between the way archaeologists are actually taught in graduate school and what they actually end up doing as professionals. And to gauge the uh, relationship between those uh, very clear potential dichotomies, which is training versus actual potential application, we have occasionally uh, run programs that canvass the ideas of graduate students who are actually involved in the training programs and have had more and more exposure to the functional world of practical archaeology than they ever have before. And what I want to do in this program, as I've done pretty much on an annual basis as we uh, present programs like this, is to gauge the sensitivities and the general feelings that uh, actual students have as they run through the program and uh, try to streamline their training and streamline their focus uh, into the realities that uh, involve archaeological training and archaeological application. And my two students for today are uh, Ms. Melissa Frederick and Mr. Richie Roy. Ms. Frederick is a second-year historical archaeology graduate student at Illinois State University, and she completed her undergraduate training in anthropology at American University in, DC, in Washington, D.C., and she worked for two years in the field before applying to a graduate program, and her areas of interest include the history and archaeology of the Cherokee Nation, slavery, and Spanish and British colonization in North America. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Richie Roy is currently enrolled at the University of Massachusetts Boston campus in the Master's Program in Historical Archaeology. He works as a GIS, uh, Geographic Information Systems Data Entry Specialist, at the Massachusetts Historical Commission. His research interests include zooarchaeology, foodways, environmental archaeology, and as I said before, uh, geographic information systems, or GIS. So, Richie, welcome to the program as well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Rich, let me start with you for a second because you have actually emphasized in your short bio uh, 
the development of a GIS facility and your ability to actually utilize uh, geographic information systems for those of us, for those of the public actually, who are not familiar with this, geographic information systems are a very sophisticated mapping device that archaeologists who work in the field and who uh, subsequently analyze artifacts use uh, in attempting to uh, put their data into a very, very concrete format to uh, specify location with respect to world geographic coordinates and uh, locational information as it's required. It's a very, very functional uh, talent and skill to have developed in my day, uh, which goes back to uh, the Pleistocene, for those of you who know this terminology. Um, this kind, These kinds of trainings were not... Uh, fully developed and uh, right now they become very very important for archaeologists so I'd like to ask you Rich as we go forward do you find that this kind of training is is uh, very helpful in what you're doing and have you uh, developed and honed that skill because you understood that the world of archaeology was in fact a very empirical world indeed uh, yeah that's one of the exact reasons I think that's become so important I think um, it's you know it's tied into all tons of new directions that uh, the field is generally going. Uh, one is collaboration, and many other environmental sciences and other disciplines have already been using GIS and experimenting it for a while, and so the fact that we're generating our own data in the same format allows us to interact with other researchers in a very important way. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, a lot of the work I do um, for the Historic Commission um, is actually uh, historic preservation and standing structures, so again, it's one of those things that allows us to work with other researchers in other fields. Yeah, and you find you you knew this as you were going in. I mean, you were going in as a recently minted uh, BA student, correct? Correct. And you knew that that's what you wanted to do. I mean, did you have a uh, a general inkling, or did people tell you? Did your undergraduate advisors tell you that you needed to have a practical skill if you were going to work in this field? Um, I, I I'm not sure if it was ever made explicit, explicitly. Uh, Obviously, but definitely at some point, I realized that you know, almost like going out there and trying to get any other job, you got to have some marketable technical skills and GIS. I've, I've always liked computers, and so that's something that sort of came a little bit uh, naturally for me. And there were lots of opportunities for me to both uh, use it and practice it and learn how to use it. So I think that was one of those things that sort of fell into my lap and has been useful ever since. Okay, Melissa, have you uh, have you had the need or have you developed the uh, a use for uh, learning GIS, and if um, so, I have taken a course at ISU. Um, they offer a few, uh, but you have to have a certain amount of credits to get the certification. And I do think that's a really important factor in getting a job in archaeology. A lot of cultural resource management companies are looking for people with that kind of experience. Um, and I know that uh, when I was working at ISAS, they like had you'll a lot of people. You'll have to tell people what you'll have to tell people what that is. Um, it's the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. Okay. Um, so they do a lot of excavations in Illinois, and uh, when they were having to do layoffs, uh, a lot of the people that had the GIS experience were the people that they kept on because they needed a lot of help with that. So it's a good skill to have for sure. And did your undergraduate advisor tell you that you needed to develop empirical skills once you got into the field, or was were you not at that point uh, contemplating doing archaeology as a major or as a career? Um, I was definitely thinking about archaeology as a career, um, but I wanted to go into the field and get that experience to make sure that it is actually what I wanted to do before I went into my graduate studies. Um, but when I was in undergrad, I feel like they didn't really inform us too much about the importance of GIS, and there were never any courses that were offered in my undergrad university, but I feel like now it's becoming more and more prevalent. Let me ask both of you, Richard, you first. Uh, when you were getting your undergraduate training, did you uh, did you have a strong inclination or a strong feeling that you actually wanted to pursue archaeology as a career? Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely did. That was sort of my intent 
I think uh, from the word go, even you know, when applying to schools, I was applying as a potential anthropology major, and while I didn't have much of an idea of what that was sort of about, whether, you know, I think sort of my interest in history and being outdoors sort of led me in that direction, and I, I've yet to hit very many reasons to stop and reconsider that, so I've, I've been enjoying it since undergrad, and I definitely had that direction in mind once I began. What about the feet? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, um, when I went into undergrad, I was mostly interested in history. All the schools I applied to, it was t- to their history programs that I had wanted to go into. Um, and then I took an introduction to archaeology class, and I figured out, you know, I didn't want to be stuck in an office job or stuck in an office for a lot of time. So like Richie, it's a lot of my interest in history and being outdoors that led me to this career path. I guess you know that the historical approaches and the archaeological pr- approaches don't always mesh. Did that bother you, or are you not at the point right now where you, uh, you've encountered that kind of potential? It's not really conflict, but it certainly requires sort of trying to blend two skill sets into something that's convergent and, and ultimately very productive. Uh, I haven't noticed too much of a conflict. Um, I actually have a history professor on my thesis committee. So she does give a little bit of a different perspective, so I can see where there could be conflict, but um, so far I haven't really noticed it that much. What about you, Richie? Have you noticed any conflict? Um, yeah, I would say you know, conflict, I think, like you said, it's kind of a... It's a little strong. Strong, strong word, but um, it's definitely sort of, a, you know, we talk about uh, scientific questions that we ask, and I think everybody yeah. well, within the field of archaeology as well as the field of... Um, history sort of tend to ask sometimes different different questions. You know, I've had to take some history classes for my master's degree. It was certainly not all, you know, we're looking at the same sort of stuff, but asking different questions of the information. And we will be back in this very intriguing discussion on the training of archaeologists in the 21st century after we come back following these messages. Stay tuned, please. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you too. Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with a a uh, special presentation on 
Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking to graduate students uh, who are being trained to be the archaeologists of tomorrow. And as I had indicated earlier, we've done a number of programs with graduate students. But in this case, it's a little bit different. We are speaking to two uh, very articulate graduate students whose objectives are basically to uh, complete a master's degree rather than follow what used to be a very traditional pathway, which is to sort of uh, achieve a master's degree on the road to a doctorate with the ultimate objective of following a career in the professorial and pedagogic realms. That is no longer the case as archaeology has changed increasingly into a more applied field over the past 20 or even 30 years. Uh, Melissa, let me ask you, uh, did you have a clear vision of what you wanted to achieve when you went to graduate school right after you completed your undergraduate work? Did you know that you wanted to be a master's uh, student and whether or not a PhD was something that you had or have on your potential plate as as you go forward? Um, Well, when I finished undergrad, I took some time off to make sure that archaeology was something I was really interested in. And then I actually applied to three PhD programs and one master's program and decided to go to the master's program, um, which I'm glad I did because I didn't realize how much stress it is and how much I still had left to learn um, and also, you know, the financial strain that comes with it as well. Uh, and then once I was in it, I also realized that it would probably be a good idea to get some teaching experience, too, after I graduate, before I decide if maybe I do want to go into a Ph.D. program um, and spend, you know, all that time commitment and money uh, to get that degree. That's an interesting issue. I mean, so did you, did you, in the course of applying, inquire as to what was involved in the Ph.D. program, you probably actually had some kind of an idea that this was much a, a much longer track and that potentially, and I will say this unequivocally, uh, not necessarily uh, much more of a reward at the end of that road. Did you have those thoughts in mind, or did you canvas uh, faculty or students to figure out what that was and make your decision based on uh, those kind of factors? I did, um, and actually a supervisor of mine uh, at the the archaeology company that I was working for um, he was still working on his master's thesis, um, and it just made me realize, you know, how much work it involves because he had already been out of graduate school. He had already graduated, but he was still having to work on it, and I just it just made me realize how much time it takes up. And um, so I just felt that at that moment I wasn't prepared to invest seven years of my life into archaeology before I got more experience in it. And and you mean moving towards a PhD or still following a master's track? I guess um, which one of these seven years? Um, that's a PhD track, or is it just the combination of working and uh, financing your master's studies? Um, it's it was a little bit of both. Uh, I definitely feel like I want to have more of a. I I just need more experience in teaching before I decide to go into a Ph.D. program, because I really feel like that's what you go into getting your doctorate for. Um, And I feel like a lot of archaeology jobs don't really require you to have a Ph.D. at this point, so that's kind of where my thinking was at. And I think you're very right about that. I think that's a uh, change that has really occurred over the course of the past couple of decades where the focus is increasingly applied and most, uh, I guess most of the graduate students at this point know that that's the case. Richie, it seems to me that you already set, had your, your vision set on what you wanted to do. You saw an opening at the Historical Commission in Massachusetts and did you actually tailor your graduate program to that job or how did it work or how did you uh, come to uh, develop your perspective? Uh, well, actually, Joe, so I, I, this, I've only had this uh, job for the past few months now. It was more of a job with flexible hours that I was qualified for um, that I could do while I was working on my, on my master's. So 
I was actually the, the process was very similar to Melissa's, where I applied to a couple of PhD and master's programs after taking a year off to work, mm-hmm. and I I sort of found that I really valued that year off in between going on to the next step. So even should I choose to pursue a PhD, I like the idea of being able to stop and take a couple of years off um, and work professionally before I embark on that again. And you're pretty secure in what you're doing. Do you do you foresee going beyond that, or are you happy with what you're doing right now? Um, I definitely <clears throat> uh, foresee going, taking it in another direction. I don't work in other, you know, there's, there's multiple different fields and sort of directions that archaeology can take in whether you go through academia route or maybe working in a museum in sort of a public outreach sort of place or working um, for cultural resource companies. So I would like to try out sort of the the rest of the options before I leap back into a PhD program. Much like Melissa said, you know, it's the number of jobs that actually require a PhD are slim. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. you've got to make sure it's the right direction you kind of want to take it. So that's a, that's an acknowledged understanding amongst graduate students that taking that that uh, really long pathway towards PhD that's that's a tough route and not one that necessarily guarantees your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Is that <laughs> sure? And like the you know the, the halls are ringing with people warning, being like you know the the market flushed people who went and got their PhDs and it turned out they weren't even going to go into a direction that needed it. So be sure not to waste all that time and money and blood, sweat, and tears. Is, is So what I'm asking both of you, and I guess I got the answer, but I just want to confirm, the word is out, right? That it's it, it's not all it's cracked up to be and that it's going to be very difficult to uh, to actually get that thing, uh, get that degree, actually, and um, ultimately the return on the investment not might not be so great. Am I correct there? Absolutely. Yeah, Mel- I agree. Melissa. Yeah, Melissa, you were you were mentioning stress. Stress. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? In my day, we didn't talk about it. We experienced it certainly, but we certainly didn't talk about stress. We were just. Uh, you, you could just tell that we weren't sleeping at night. But um, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think there's a greater sensitivity to that psychological component of graduate training for archaeology and, for that matter, for other fields. Why don't you give us a little bit of a, uh, a run? through on your experiences in that, if you don't mind? Uh, my experiences mostly stem from uh, how you have to finish your 150-page thesis by, you know, a quick deadline. So almost as soon as you enter the program, they're already asking you, what do you think your thesis topic is going to be? Um, when are you going to start analyzing your um, your data, like start start collecting your data, and so the the fast deadlines were what stressed me out a lot of the time, and then just getting back into the groove of being in an academic setting and having research papers due and um, lots lots more reading in graduate school than in undergraduate school. Sure. Uh, yeah. Why don't you walk me through that? Let's talk about your thesis in particular and and your program and how do you balance your program with uh, actually focusing on the thesis. Why don't you put us take take me through that experience in this day and age on, on what you have to do? I mean, are you taking courses, writing your thesis in parallel, or do you take your courses, a certain set of courses, and then proceed to write your thesis afterwards? How do you have to blend these two components of your degree? Um, well, at my university at Illinois State, um, they have you take an archaeological um, research and methods course uh, your first semester. And my professor actually said that, you know, we didn't have to choose a topic that we thought we would write our thesis on for, for that big research paper, but it was basically a run-through of this is all that you're going to have to include in your thesis. This is a, uh, like a preparatory course for that um, so it was kind of like write half of a thesis in a semester. So that was a bit stressful. Um, and then they they really want you to start having your topic in mind and writing your proposal by that second semester. And really the third semester is when you start um, collecting your data and analyzing everything. And then the last one, like my school, has pushed up the deadline even further for actually finishing all the writing for your thesis and defending. Um, so you really only have about three months to finish writing everything. So it, I just feel like uh, 
they started pushing you to to write everything pretty early, which is good, um, but it's it's difficult to figure out exactly what you want to do that quickly. So I feel like you almost have to have a, a thesis topic in mind right when you go into your graduate program. And that's not something they taught you in the beginning. Uh, you had no idea that that's how it was going to actually operate, right? No. <laughs> no. So, so why don't you enlighten me a little bit? What is your thesis about and how are you collecting your data and how does it mesh with your coursework? I'm actually looking at a site in East Tennessee. It's a late prehistoric contact period site. Um, the Spanish uh, de Soto's um, expedition actually visited the site. And I'm looking at uh, the ceramics that were found there and trying to piece together the origins of the community that kind of built itself there. Um, so I'm trying to do that by looking at the ceramics and seeing how it may have been more of a coalescent community, so several people, several different groups from different areas around East Tennessee kind of coming together and creating this new kind of identity uh, in the Nolichecki Valley. So that's kind of what my thesis topic is on. Um, um, and then actually preparing for it, like I said, it's it was really just that first semester, and then the rest of it is, is talking to your advisor and getting a lot of help from them. And Rich, what what is your your topic? Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm uh, I'm analyzing the faunal assemblage from a uh, late 17th, early 18th century house site on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the house was owned by Experience Mayhew, who was uh, one of a long line of a family of uh, missionaries sent to convert the uh, book Wampanoag to Christianity. And were you, are you finding that it's also a stressful experience and that you have to juggle a whole lot of things in your case, probably your work up, uh, obligations, as well as taking classes and focusing on the thesis itself? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think um, the, my program is structured a little bit differently than Melissa's. Um, the, the overall size, the thesis, uh, they expect to come in actually at a little under 100 pages. Um, and basically the way it works is your first... Uh, first year, so two semesters, you're just taking classes full-time, both um, sort of special topics as well as uh, like a theory and methods sort of overview. And then um, the second year, first semester, is about when they expect you to start handing in your proposal. And then you have from that point forward, so let's say October, to do your data collection uh, and writing. And um, mm -hmm. there's, there's somewhat less pressure to finish the thesis, you know, quote fingers, uh, on time uh, you know, generally you're expected to do it uh, by, you know, May of your second year, but in some ways it's a little bit unrealistic for the way the program is structured, having to right. do so late. Uh, so the the real stressor there is that <laughs> while you can go on longer than your, uh, your two-year time limit, uh, the funding runs out after your two-year time limit. Yeah. So you're, you're doing it on your own time after that. So, so, the there's, so there's a built-in clock here that takes yeah. and it's serious okay yeah. we will be back and continue our discussions with our two graduate students in archaeology melissa frederick and richie roy after these messages stay tuned please the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schildenrein, and we're back uh, discussing graduate education in archaeology, and I am speaking to two master's level students who are very focused on their uh, thesis work, their advanced work, and on the significance of developing connections between training and employment possibilities. Uh, Melissa, one of the topics that you had raised was that the choice of graduate uh, school and graduate training, even at the master's level, which is now the primary level of, of, uh, of achievement in advanced training, that that choice may have affected your decision on actually selecting a program. Why don't you discuss that a little bit in terms of your personal experience, why you selected uh, Illinois State as, as the appropriate program for you to continue your work? Um, well, Illinois State, uh, they actually have you know a pretty smaller small program, I guess you could say. Um, there's maybe uh, nine students in uh, my program that, that are my year. Um, and so I felt that that kind of small program would work to my advantage as far as uh, the attention that I would receive in my courses. And mm-hmm. then I think it also helps in uh, students being able to receive some form of financial aid if the university doesn't have to uh, choose um, between so many students as far as uh, who they can give that kind of aid to. Um, so those are kind of big factors. So it's a very practical matter in the long run, what getting aid and, and uh, do you find that the uh, the intimacy of a small academic environment is much more conducive to getting personal attention and uh, developing your interests in a more comfortable environment? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, my advisor is pretty open to, to all the students. Um, because there's there's not that many of us, so it's really easy to get in contact with her and um, feel like you're receiving the attention that you need. Richie, what about you? What uh, what factored into your decision making process, and how did you find that your selection of a program conformed to what you wanted to do and what you see yourself doing uh, going forward? Uh, well, there's a there's a number of reasons, uh, you know. <laughs> First and certainly not least, um, financially, you know, UMass Boston is a state school, and I'm from Massachusetts originally, so I receive uh, state state tuition on, or state uh, price tuition on top of stipends and scholarship and all that stuff. And the program specifically um, has a we have, uh, proportionally large number of archaeologists, specifically historical archaeologists, to the number of students. So my my class is about the same size as Melissa's. I think there are eleven of us. 11 of us in my cohort mm-hmm. and with the um, the anthropology department combined with the associated archaeological research center, center I think there's probably another, another 11 full-time archaeologists that work with us so it's, it's a lot of great attention that we get as students from the faculty with a huge array of uh, specialties and focuses Melissa, did you know that that was the type of program that you would end up doing? Did did your expectation live up to the reality? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I got a lot of good information um, from the university before I actually entered into the program. Um, so they had a lot of that online, as well as you know having personal contact with um, my advisor before. 
I entered into the program. So. And uh, you too, Richard. I mean, you found that your expectations sort of conformed to the real reality of what was going going on there. Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. I had uh, some preemptive feedback while I was applying from some of my undergrad professors, being like, "Oh, that's a great program. If you attend there, you should make sure to take classes with so and so. They're st- they're doing some really good stuff." Melissa, you were talking uh, one of your points, and we talked about this during the break, that you had indicated that networking uh, has become uh, something that you're focusing on and that you list it as one of the primary criteria that fashions what you're actually doing in your graduate program and the selection of your school and and basically a direction going forward. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because when my day, networking was simply a question of discussing very professional issues. But I'm guessing that nowadays you're looking at networking as a uh, potential vehicle for advancing you in the field. Tell us a little bit about that and when you started to realize that that was important. Uh, I think I started to realize that was important when I went to my first archaeology conference, which is actually before I went into graduate school, um, and just seeing all the people meeting there, I, I just realized that was a good opportunity to uh, get in contact with people that would potentially want to hire me later on. Um, so for that, I you know kind of realized in graduate school it's a good opportunity to go with other students from your program uh, and also your professors to go and meet new people and make contacts. Um, and then I think another f- big factor when you're in graduate school is how much um, your advisor, like the people that you are working with um, as far as professors, how much maybe they're uh, publishing and maybe how well-known they are in the field because they're a good way to get in contact with other people. Uh, I went to school with Dr. Sandbeck. She, you know, she taught me when I was going for my master's, and so that would be a good way of introducing yourself to someone um, if if they know them, you know. And are you starting to get the sense that it is helping that that you're actually feeling that the networking is advancing your career and that you're getting sort of a feel for the lay of the land and how you can advance yourself uh, in this in this domain? Um, well, I haven't actually started applying to jobs yet. Um, I feel like when I do that, I will probably uh, get more of a feel for how much uh, that networking will have helped me. <laughs> do you have a vision of what you want to do professionally? Uh, I really love to work um, in a museum, but uh, for that, I I worry that I would be inside more often than I would enjoy. Um, so maybe also the National Park Service or... Um, maybe like the, the forestry department of forest services. So something that's a little more permanent than a culture resource management position because I did mm-hmm. that for a few years. And when I went in, they told me that I'd only be hired for three months and it turned out to be longer. So it's fortunate, but I know a lot of jobs are not like that. Matt, well, Matt, Richie, what is your uh, your experience in that in the networking and in trying to sort of visualize a role for you once you complete your master's work and go out into the into the work world? Well, sure. Once you uh, once you, you know, they, they always say it's a small world, and archaeology is a particularly small world. And then it is, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. here and here, both Melissa and I are. Um, focusing in historical archaeology, which, yet again, is even a smaller slice of the pie there. Uh, so you really quickly sort of realize that everybody does know everybody, including your professors and whoever you may or may not have uh, worked for. And I definitely think that's something that, even so far, has played into uh, looking for jobs. You know, where, where I work currently, my boss went through my program. Um, I know a number of other people who came through my program working at other jobs around the city of Boston. Uh, and then not to mention, you know, we've talked about who our professors know and studied with. So mm-hmm. I definitely think that's an important part of um, <clears throat> sort of where, where academia sort of branches into the the practice and career side of your field, uh, definitely through networking. Uh, as far as for a personal and professional direction, uh, no, I don't really, I'm not 100% sure. The, the door's kind of open for me, I figure, once I graduate. Um, I've never done cultural resource management work, so that might be an area I try to get a job for a while. Um, I did work at a museum for a while, and that might be a direction I'd like to go back and work. 
You've never really worked in the cultural resources environment. Uh, no, I, I, I have not. I have, I have not had that experience. That is unusual in this day and age, I think. Uh, it, it is. I, I, you know, loosely, I've, I've done some mitigation projects, but that have been all through the... Um, my university center has been hired for various projects, so it hasn't been a real shovel bomb experience. Well, your 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 university is is a little bit unique in so far as they do put somewhat of an emphasis on on an applied venue, don't they? I mean, uh, um, yeah, they do. They they try to be really open to everybody going in different directions. I mean, I think that is the point of the the center being attached to it and sort of opening up uh, kind of your eyes to other other areas of the field where you can work. And uh, I guess you both know, while we talked about this earlier, that applied skills are are the most important things to have, obviously. Uh, Do you do a lot of statistical work? Melissa, have you done a lot of work with numbers and statistics, or is that not part of what what you're uh, working on? Because that's that's another skill that's uh, becoming increasingly important, computer skills and and mathematical skills. Um, As far as those skills, I've... I don't think they've ever really been involved in my coursework um, right. as far as my professors teaching us. But for our research papers and things, I have had to do that. And my, for my thesis, I'm going to be using statistics. Um, and I'm going to be learning you know, new models and new methods of showing those statistics uh, in my papers. So uh, it is a good skill that I'm glad I'll be developing. <laughs> And Matt, I'm assuming you're doing that kind of work anyway because you're involved in sophisticated mapping and, and probably um, three-dimensional modeling and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, and it's funny. It's, the software is great because as long as you learn the software, your graphs of the statistics themselves don't have to be as, as large as if you had learned the mathematics outside of it. You know, you just have to know what the numbers mean when they sort of come out. Right, and uh, and I think both of you. It seems like you're uh, you're getting uh, an excellent taste of what the future may hold for you. And on that note, I think we're going to go back to our final break, and we will be back after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, it means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference, live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com you're listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our final segment on this ish edition of Indiana Jones Myth 
Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm with two graduate students who are going through the nuts and bolts of what graduate education is at the master's level in archaeology. And my guests are Melissa Frederick, who is a second-year historical archaeology grad student at Illinois State University, and Mr. Richie Roy, who is currently at the University of Massachusetts Boston campus in historical archaeology as well, and works as a uh, geographic systems geographic information system specialist at the Massachusetts Historical Commission as well. I would like to ask you, both of you, Melissa, perhaps you first. What was your vision of archaeology going into graduate school, and how has it changed as a result of your training and your maturation in the profession? Um, I think a big thing that changed for me was understanding all of the, I guess, more practical and legal aspects that go into archaeology. Um, before before the excavations are actually completed, uh, I wasn't exposed to that very much in undergrad, and I was exposed a little bit more to it when I was working out in the field, um, but it wasn't until I took a, an ethics and law course um, when I got to Illinois State University that I kind of learned um, all of those kind of aspects, uh, all, the, all the legal um, reports and things that are required before excavations. Um, so that's, that was one big change for me. Uh, I assume that one one of the issues attendant to that, of course, is an understanding of the National Historic Preservation Act and the mm-hmm. compliance regulations and the um, larger issues of ethical ethics in antiquities, exchanges, and issues that really sort of impact the world on a very, very large scale. And I'm guessing you're learning that as as you proceed with your education. Yeah, exactly. And then it also exposed me to a, a different kind of area of archaeology that you could find employment in as well um, if you if you end up being interested in that. And I, I actually really enjoyed that course, so it would be something I'd be interested in. Richie, what about you? What was your vision going in, and how has it changed and been streamlined based on your experience both in graduate school and working in a regulatory environment to some degree? Um, yeah, I think, you know, much like most people not in the field coming into it sort of had, you know, I was aware that there was a lot of archaeology and history in the United States, but of course, you know, there's also a lot of glamour of the work being done overseas or in South America or other parts of the world. Um, and I think one of the big changes, much like Melissa, is how, how local archaeology can be and how political it can be. And that's some of the really interesting stuff and ways that, you know, this isn't just some ivory tower concept, but archaeology tends to matter to real people living currently. Uh, I noticed Melissa chuckling about that. You're right. It's becoming increasingly more and more of a very, very applied field and one in which uh, things like geopolitics and certainly on the state level, uh, state budgets and uh, preservation compliance and those kind of day-to-day operations and and, uh, statutes that that govern the world filter their way into archaeology as well. How do you see that and is it a big surprise to you that it has become such a very, very uh, critical element of your training and ultimately application. Richie. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, sort of the, the political of this, it's sort of been made more, made more aware to me as it goes, uh, you know, especially whenever you're working with um indigenous groups. A lot of times archaeology is one of the ways that we can really get at important histories that may not have been recorded or made evident and sort of helped them making uh, headway in a, in a pol- uh, political atmosphere. Let me ask you both. Uh, Mel- uh, Melissa, you first. What's your, what was your biggest surprise? What was your biggest revelation going into, into, uh, into the graduate program? What was, what was the real shocker or surprise or unexpected element of your training that you had no idea about when you actually were going into it? Um, I guess my biggest surprise was just the amount of stress that would, <laughs> that would come when I first started um, as far as how, how much your workload is. Uh, I 
I mean, it had been a few years since I was in undergrad, so I guess if I had gone immediately after, it wouldn't have been as big of a shock to me. But uh, that was probably my biggest surprise, in addition to, you know, how quickly uh, starting your thesis work um, would help you. (laughs) And you had mentioned also that you have to really balance your academic research and your work with also sustaining some kind of a personal life and personal schedule as well. Exactly. that's, That's really what helps me personally get through all of the stress of having people that I can go and go out for drinks with, you know, after a difficult test and, and things like that. So, Richie, your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I live very close to where I grew up personally, but most of my childhood, uh, childhood friends have, you know, what we like to call like a real job, like something where <laughs> they start at 9 in the morning and they get done at 5. And they're free on the weekends, and I, I'm working on, like, a very different schedule. So uh, despite being very close to a lot of my, uh, very near a lot of my very close friends, I still spend a lot of time with my, uh, my cohort just because we're experiencing the same sort of things. And, you know, we're free to go out for drinks at three because we're the only ones who are out. I don't have a class right then. I think you hit on a very interesting point and one that really hasn't changed over the t- over the years, and that is that it takes a very special type of person to do this sort of thing, a person who's not a nine-to-fiver and a person whose perspective on the world is just a little bit different. Uh, would you both agree with that assessment? For sure. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely would. Um, I de- you know, on, on one hand, there is something to be said said for getting out of a job at some point during the day and going home and not having to worry about it, but on the other hand, archaeology is also definitely not just a job, it's a passion, and I want to think about the rest of the day and on the weekends and at inappropriate times. Melissa, your your, your take on that? I would agree with them. Uh, I, I think going into archaeology, you do it for the love of the discipline, um, not so much for the money. <laughs> Well, sure. that's, yeah, yeah, that's a, and that's a big point, and I'm glad we get get into that uh, before the uh, session actually ends. I think it's one of those professions, and I will tell you this over many, many years and decades of experience, it sticks with you, and it is a passion, and it is something that uh, your inner soul sort of dictates that you will get your personal satisfaction in that field. Otherwise, uh, there are so many reasons not to do it. And I think both of you are still in that point where you're saying, well, this is, this is what I'm in. And, and uh, I guess you both know that your world's just going to be a little bit different if you stick with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, any advice to incoming graduate students, uh, what they should be on the lookout for in addition to what you guys mentioned? This is, we have about a minute left. Melissa? I would just say, you know, try to think of what you want to write your thesis on pretty early on because that deadline approaches fast. <laughs> and Richie? And uh, look for work with your professors over the summer. You know, once field school ends, you still had at least half the summer to keep digging mm-hmm. or keep working with other people. And those are always good opportunities to, A, maybe make money, and B, uh, try new things out. I want to thank my two guests, uh, graduate students in historical archaeology, both pursuing master's degree, Melissa Frederick from the university, from Illinois State University. I think that's in normal Illinois, isn't it? Yep, that's right. And uh, Richie Roy, who is at the University of Massachusetts Boston campus and is also working at the Massachusetts Historical Commission. I want to thank you both very much for participating in the program. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yep. It's been fun. And stay tuned. Uh, Next week we will have another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Until then, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and have a pleasant day and a promising tomorrow. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.